We're at the end of the Jewish High Holy Days that began with Rosh Hashanah, the legendary birth of the universe, followed by the ten days of repentance or days of awe, and culminated with Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Traditionally, in the Yom Kippur service, the shofar, or ram's horn, is blown during the service. Now, the sound of the shofar, if you have heard it, it's not really very comforting music that soothes the soul. It is actually an abrasive sound that makes people sit up. It even startles people and makes them take notice of what is wrong in ourselves and the world and then recommit to change. Now Rosh Hashanah is about goals and objectives. It's about creating a new chapter in one's life. It provides an opportunity to reflect on what we want to achieve in life, on the overall direction we want to travel in life and the destination we would like to reach. Yom Kippur, on the other hand, is about returning. It is an opportunity to look at the decisions we have made in our lives thus far and honestly ask ourselves, have I made the right choices? Where have I stumbled or lost my way? Where and how have I caused ill or harm to others? And how can I rectify them to get back on track? So Yom Kippur allows us to see with new eyes and heart the brokenness, whether it be among our deepest selves, our family, our friends, our congregation, or the world, and recommit to doing the work of tikkun olam, the work of repairing and transforming a broken world. Now let me digress for a moment to give you a gadget analogy. How many of you own a GPS? Good. How many of you do not know what a GPS is? Excellent. Well, we're all familiar, so I don't have to talk about the GPS. Well, GPS, our global positioning system, is a global navigation satellite system that provides location and weather information without interruption. And, of course, it used to be used by the military and, and NASA, of course, and, and all that, but now it's really handy that it's available rather cheaply for anyone to put in their cars. Now, it's a fabulous device to have in your car, especially for those of us, including yours truly, who are directionally challenged. It's a godsend, I tell you. Now, it's a godsend because the moment you get lost, there's a friendly voice that chimes, recalculating, 
Now, I am convinced that the beautiful Australian woman who is in my GPS <laughs> is actually quite exasperated with me because she used, there's a certain tone in the way she says recalculating because I tend to get lost almost every time I go somewhere. That's just me. I'm sure you have a more friendlier voice on your GPS. But anyway, you get the drift. Now for the Jewish people, Yom Kippur is God's way of allowing them to recalculate their lives. That's the analogy. So underlying the message of atonement are some presumptions about ultimate reality that warrant a closer look first. The first one is that life is not segregated into different parts. That is, there is no separation between one's spiritual life, that is, our relationship with God or truth or ultimate reality or eternal mystery, whatever you wish to call it, or not. Or one's ethical life, which is how we live out our values. One's social life, how we relate to others and what we do with others in our relationships. And one's emotional life, which is our relationship with ourselves, which includes our self-awareness. All of this is connected, interconnected. Life is one. Now, the second aspect is that it is human nature to get some or all of these parts of our lives out of line or out of whack sometime or another, either intentionally or unintentionally. That is, as human beings, we're not naturally inclined or committed to create and sustain fair and just and equitable relationships with each other. Because if we did, we wouldn't have a presentation about the DREAM Act this morning. If we did, we wouldn't be in the economic mess that we find ourselves in this nation. If we did, we wouldn't have thousands of young people marching in Wall Street or on Main Street around the country saying, we have to get this nation back on track for that 99% of Americans. We wouldn't be talking about occupying Wall Street. But we do. People hurt each other. People are cruel and mean to each other. People diss each other. Even well-intentioned religious liberals like Unitarian Universalists. I'm just letting that sink. Because we often like to quote our first principle, we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Except, we're more interested in making sure people affirm and promote our inherent worth and dignity than sometimes we are about affirming 
the other person's inherent worth and dignity. That's why we keep stepping on each other's toes when we go through religious living as a community, which is okay because this is not, this is not a principle that's easy even in the best of circumstances. It is an aspiration that we are called to live to, to the best of our potential. It's a work in progress. That's why we have a religious community such as this, because it allows us to do that work in community. But why is it that we trip and stumble and hurt and be mean to each other? It's because we are mostly thinking about ourselves, me. Me. It's not you, 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 you. It's me, me. Now, theologians have a term for this. It's called a state of alienation. Because in our self-absorption, we sometimes isolate ourselves from others, from our community, from our loved ones, and ultimately, God. But the wonderful genius of Yom Kippur is that it gives us an opportunity to take an intentional step towards overcoming this alienation and recalculating, rebalancing our lives. So it's an internal GPS that gets us to recalculate and get back on, tri- on track. So what does Yom Kippur ask of us? I've identified three things. Firstly, Yom Kippur calls us to see ourselves clearly as we truly are without our assortment of masks that we like to carry around. Now, there's a Jewish midrash, which actually my dear friend David Wiseman, who's the rabbi at Congregation Bet Shalom on Belcher Road, he and I got together last Wednesday because we were both struggling with our Yom Kippur sermons. His was a bit more urgent because it was on Friday and mine was on Sunday. <laughs> so we chatted, exchanged notes, helped each other out. So I'm truly grateful for the kind of insights he provided me because I do have something to say this morning, which I didn't. Anyway, Rabbi David told me this midrash. It's about the hour when God prepared to create humankind. And then the angel love said, let them be created for they will do works of love. Then the angel truth said, let them not be created for they will practice deception. The angel justice said, let them be created for they will do justice. And the angel peace said, let them not be created, for they will all be controversy. So God then seized truth and threw it away. Because without truth, it was harder for humans to find and practice justice, love, and peace. That's the Midrash. So Yom Kippur is a day to do some truth-telling. Stripped of our daily comforts and our distractions, we can, if we dare, stare truth in the face. 
We could cast our truths away as God did in the Midrash and hope that they disappear. But if we truly want justice, love, peace, or compassion to mean anything, we must instead take hold of truth and bring it into the light. A second important theme for Yom Kippur is repentance. Repent. Now, repentance is a problematic word for Unitarian Universalists, isn't it? Especially when it is traditionally used in the context of human impurity, our inherent sinfulness, our being lumps of sin, as my theology professor once said, and unrighteousness before God. Now, while such a rigid theological perspective misses the point of the true meaning of repentance, which is actually to acknowledge and rectify one's failure to live by one's highest values and aspirations, so does a total rejection of the principle, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Whether or not one believes in God, Repentance is good for an emotionally healthy life. That's why some of us go see and spend time with therapists, because it gives us a chance to go through that process. Now, there's a word for this in Judaism. This whole process of repentance is called teshuva. Teshuva is about taking responsibility, responsibility. That is, developing the ability to move from a place of deep knowing of what is right and not from our excuses or our defensiveness. Teshuva is more than admitting one's wrongs. It is about not repeating the same thing again combined with doing what needs to be done to set things right. Teshuva is about seeking and granting forgiveness, which Judaism says is the way we draw closer to the meaning of being human. Which brings up the third and last meaning of Yom Kippur, forgiveness. First, let me clarify what forgiveness is not before I go into what forgiveness is. For starters... Forgiveness is not cheap. It is not being sentimental. So it's not that mushy stuff. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Because real wrongs cannot be forgotten. If we could forget them, they weren't serious enough to begin with. Right? Forgiveness is not ignoring, condoning, or excusing the wrongs. In his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who actually celebrated his 80th birthday last Wednesday, says, forgiveness means taking what happened seriously and not minimizing it. It is drawing out the sting 
in the memory that threatens to poison our very existence. It involves trying to understand the perpetrators and so develop empathy to try to stand in their shoes and appreciate the sort of pressures and influences that have conditioned them to act in the way that they did. I'll come back to that. Forgiveness is not surrendering to or remaining hurt for a long, long time. That's resigned martyrdom. Forgiveness does not require reconciling or becoming friends with someone who has wronged you, although it can lead to those outcomes. And forgiveness does not mean putting the other on indefinite probation. In other words, forgiveness is not conditional. So what is forgiveness? The Stanford Forgiveness Project, a research group based in Stanford University in California, offers what I thought a very good explanation. The project claims that forgiveness is the feeling of peace that emerges as you take your hurt less personally. Take responsibility for how you feel and become a hero instead of a victim in the story that you tell. Forgiveness is the experience of peacefulness in the present moment. Forgiveness does not change the past, but it changes the present. Forgiveness means that even though you are wounded, you choose to hurt and suffer less. Forgiveness means you become a part of the solution. Forgiveness is the understanding that hurt is a normal part of life. Forgiveness, they conclude, is for you and no one else. End of quote. Marjorie Thompson, in her book, Moving Towards Forgiveness, offers this definition. Forgiveness, she says, is a choice to leave behind our resentment and desire for retribution excusing persons from the punitive consequences they deserve to suffer for their behavior. End of quote. So, forgiveness is giving up our right to even the score. It is letting go of our resentments, however righteous, and offering the persons who hurt us our friendlier attitudes to which they are not entitled. Mahatma Gandhi, and some of the things I shared last week, is a good example of how forgiveness needs to be practiced. But that's a very difficult thing to do, for me at least. You see, I get a lot of satisfaction, even pleasure, in holding on to my anger. I do. You see, my anger energizes me. It makes me feel self-righteous. It's righteous self-indignation. It feeds, it funnels, it fuels my ego. And above all else, it lets me wallow in self-pity. 
and feel victimized. Why on earth would I want to give up all of that? I mean, come on. Would you? I wouldn't. No. Because as long as I hold on to my anger, my smoldering resentment, and my victimhood, I don't have to acknowledge to myself or to others not only my deep woundedness, but also my vulnerability and my insecurities. I can use my anger as a shield to not acknowledge the instances when I have hurt others, let alone my innate capacity to hurt others. I know I'm not alone in this, because we all have, at some time or another, in some way or another, done or said something to cause a breach in our relationships. It could be with our spouse or loved ones, with parents or children, with colleagues or friends, or with members in this congregation. None of us is totally blameless. We have all hurt others, just as we have been hurt by others. And sometimes we have lashed out at others because we are still hurting. Now the few times, and I underline few, the few times when I have actually paid attention to the better angels of my nature and tried to practice forgiveness, I have to admit I have felt a deep sense of freedom, release, and peace. I felt released from the grip of the past and felt energized and empowered to move on into the future. Some of you may remember that about my talking about my father a few years back. My father walked out on my mother and myself when I was really young, an infant, and he never really tried to reconnect with us. He married again and had children of his own, and he went off on that path. And my mother struggled to be recognized as his first wife. And in the process, she did legally, but in the process, it destroyed their relationship or whatever was left. So I carried a lot of righteous anger about him all through my life. And after our marriage, my wife and I tried to reconnect with him, and it seemed to be going somewhere, so we were quite happy. And then after our younger son was born and he got to a place where he was looking at the family picture and realizing there was someone missing there, he wanted to know who my father was. So we made a special trip to India, tracked him down. He had retired by them and sat him down with all of us sitting with him to talk about finding a way to rebuild our relationship. He listened to all of us. He was glad to see his grandsons. And then he said, no, I'm not interested. It pissed me off. First of all, we had spent thousands of dollars to go to India, which was sitting on my credit card. 
I didn't look forward to the prospect of repaying all that with nothing to show. But secondly, just his attitude ticked me off. But I didn't say anything. There was nothing to say, so we parted ways. And after that, a couple of months later, as I sat with it and sat with it and kept thinking about it, and this was right before Father's Day, it hit me that it was about him, not about me. And that by holding on to something that was not at all important at that stage in my life, I was missing out on being a better father and a better husband. When I had that realization, something washed over me that I actually felt a sense of love and kindness for the first time in my life towards my father. And I realized that was the moment when I forgave him. And not just that, without expecting anything from him in return, and moved on with my life. My forgiving wasn't instantaneous. I realized that forgiving my father for his absence in my life was more for myself than for him, or to condone or excuse his behavior. So I offer that as an example of what indeed forgiveness can do, and I'm sure you have examples from your own lives that I hope you will reflect on, at least in this time, and see how that applies to you as you move forward into your lives. Because occasions such as the Jewish High Holy Days, the whole process of teshuva, of repentance and turning around, remind us that we have it in us at some point to let go, to develop heart space, to reconnect. They remind us that we can work to mend that which is broken. We can honor the holy in one another despite each other's faults and shortcomings and in this way rebuild the world one relationship at a time. So my friends, I encourage you to search your heart for the times you have missed the mark, harmed another, or have been harmed and seek a path to forgiveness. I make no promises of success or assurances of salvation, yet my own work, ongoing work with forgiveness, encourages me. Because the odds on love are good, not just good, they're great. So take the risk. Take that spiritual risk. Because when we do, we build once more a world of greater wholeness with deeper understandings of truth and beauty, justice and compassion. So be it.